The second Bible reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, finishing at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 2. This passage can be found on page 726 in the Pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 13, starting from verse 1, finishing at chapter 14, verse 2. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah son of Amos saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop, shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains, like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms, like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath, to destroy the whole country. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp, Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty, and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, each will return to his own people. Each will flee to his native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives ravished. See, I will stir up against them the meats, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses, there the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds, jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place, and the house of Israel will possess the nations as men servants and maidservants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors 
and rule over the oppressors. This is God's word. Thank you, Natasha, and thank you, Brian, for leading us in prayer. The kids have been learning the book of Isaiah for quite a while, and I thought if the kids are doing it, tackling this big, daunting book, we should too as adults. So, uh, but we will need God's help. It is a big book, uh, so let's pray, and we'll have a look at this. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might give us a desire to even study and sit under the difficult parts of Scripture, to seek your mind and your will, to consider how our lives and our our behaviour and our desires and our heart is meant to be changed by your word. And we pray that you will do that in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Isaiah, as you know, is a huge book. It is quite a daunting book, in fact. Um, anyone here feels comfortable with the book of Isaiah? 66 chapters. Anyone? No hands, which means we're a, a humble bunch. That's good. Uh, but we do need God's help with this. And it is quite daunting, but it is a very important book. It's in fact the second most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And it's often known as the Gospel of the Old Testament. A lot of themes of the Gospel comes through from the book of Isaiah. And because it is quite a big book, uh, last year in our evening service, we, we started Isaiah. We looked at chapters 1 to 12. Um, so you can find that online. But the focus on chapters 1 to 12 is that there is judgment upon the people of God, but there's always this glimmer of hope and salvation that comes through. And Isaiah was called to be the one who brings this message of judgment and repentance to the people of God. So that's chapters 1 to 12. In this series that we're beginning today, we'll be looking at chapters 13 to 39. And in this unit, we, the overarching theme is that God is the ruler of all the nations. Now the focus goes out and considers all the surrounding nations. And God is the ruler. It is God who is sovereign. And it is God who will bring judgment on all the nations. God is the God of all, not just of his people. And hopefully next year, God willingly, we'll finish off the series looking at 40 to 66. And so the theme I want us to hear each week is that it is God who rules over all. No one else, nothing else. It is God who is sovereign. And so before we have a look at this passage, it's, it's worth locating the story of Isaiah and the prophet Isaiah in history. He was a real person in a real time in a real place. And so what we're going to do is a little bit unusual. We've done this in the evening before, but we'll try it here. I've got some volunteers, so I'm going to invite my volunteers up onto the stage, stand in a line, just to help you see where Isaiah fits in history. So just make a line across. Now, many of you would know that the Bible begins at Genesis, and in Genesis, one of the most significant person was the world was a terrible mess, complete mess, but into this messy, chaotic world, God spoke again, and he spoke his word of promise, and that was to Abraham. You look like Abraham. So Abraham... Well, it's about 2000 BC, which means that's about 4,000 years ago. Okay, it was God who made promises to Abraham that through this one man, God will bring blessing to the whole world. Now move down a few centuries, and the next person was Moses. He was about 1500 BC. Okay, 1500 BC, we know the story of Moses. He's the one who delivered the people of God from Egypt, and God used him in powerful ways. 
Now, a few more centuries. These are key figures that we should know. So Abraham, when was he? 2000 BC. Moses, 1500. The next big guy in the Old Testament was King David, the, the greatest king over Israel, the one who brought peace uh, to the kingdom. Um, so he's the one who defeated Goliath. He was about 1000 BC. So that means that's about 3,000 years ago. So these are real people in a real place, in a real time in history. Now his son, who was his son who became king? Solomon. Solomon was about 970 BC. Now that was the golden era in the kingdom of God, in the nation of Israel. There was more wealth than they could count. Um, he, had a, he had peace from surrounding nations. The kingdom was in the, their peak. But Solomon had a problem. Anyone remember what his problem was? Not one problem, a thousand problems. <laughs> he had too many ladies, too many wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And because of that, they led him astray. They got him to worship their gods, their idols. Now, of course, God was not going to be happy with that. But what God did was, in the kindness of God, it wasn't during Solomon's reign, when God punished him, but it was during the reign of his son. And what happened was, we're going to get sort of like you to stand at the back, Yvonne, and Lena in front. So you're Israel, Yvonne, and you're Judah. So during the reign of Solomon's son, the kingdom was divided. Where's Israel? 922. And Judah, 922 BC, the kingdom was divided. The northern kingdom known as Israel the southern kingdom known as Judah. That was God's punishment because of Solomon's sin. So now the kingdom's divided. At the top, there were ten tribes in the northern kingdom, Israel. Two tribes in the bottom, Judah was the biggest, that's why it's known as Judah. Okay, so that's 922. So if you keep these, mind, uh, these dates in mind, that would help you to locate Isaiah when he comes about. Now, 200 years after the kingdom was divided, we now have nasty-looking Assyrian. <laughs> he comes along. Assyria becomes a superpower at that time. He comes along and he kills my lovely wife, Yvonne. <laughs> Israel. Israel decimated by the Assyrian superpower. Completely decimated. Um, uh, ten tribes completely gone. That was it. Now, at 597... We've got another guy, another superpower, who rises to power, and we'll be speaking about Babylon today. Babylon becomes a superpower. They defeat the Assyrians. Yes, I was wondering where my Isaiah was. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so Assyria defeats Israel. They are gone, so you guys can sort of bob down. Babylon comes and now exiles Judah. Yep, you, you two are gone. No, Judah stands. Now you take Lena and you go away. So you can stand over here. So they go off into exile. They go to Babylon. Okay? Now, where's Isaiah? Isaiah's over here, this old man. <laughs> <laughs> Isaiah lived about 740 BC. So there, that's you. Now, when was that? Well, come over here, Greg. You're just after Solomon around here no actually Israel you, you, you just hide away you're dead <laughs> so Isaiah comes okay you can stand now Isaiah comes about 
prophesying to the people of God before the Assyrians destroyed the north and also before Babylon exiled the south. That's where Isaiah was. And in the whole book of Isaiah, he's speaking about this event that will happen in the future and he's also speaking about this event that will happen in the future. And the way we are to understand prophecy is that there's always an immediate fulfillment of it seen in Assyrian conquest and the Babylonian exile, but it also speaks bigger, grander things into the future. Okay, thank you, volunteers. Take a seat. And so Isaiah's job was to be God's mouthpiece to the people of God, speaking God's words to them. And if you just think about that idea, how do you ever know whether you are living rightly under God? I mean, you desperately want to know, don't you? Well, in the Old Testament, that was the job of the prophets. They were there to let them know you are living rightly or wrongly, but often it's always you are living wrongly. You are going to be judged unless you repent. And so they revealed God's assessment on society, on the world, and on their nation. And if you think about that, it's sort of like what our world leaders try to do today. Our world leaders today, they try to make assessments on their own nation or all the other nations around the world. And one of the popular catchphrases that has come into popular use in recent times is, are you on the wrong side of history or are you on the right side of history? Have you heard that catchphrase before? You're on the wrong side or the right side? Barack Obama, when he was president and when he was in office, he would often speak of those who are on his side or the Americans being on the right side of history and everyone else who is against him, they are on the wrong side of history. And so the terrorists, they were always on the wrong side of history. He also claimed that those who were against same-sex marriage were on the wrong side of history. And so that's what our political leaders do. But of course, how do you work out who is on the right side or who is on the wrong side? Because in history, it's hard to tell when you're in the thick of it. Like folks like William Wilberforce, who fought slavery, they were seen by the vast majority as being on the wrong side of history, but of course they were on the right side. Or in Nazi Germany, many of the Germans thought they were doing the right thing. They were on the right side of history, but of course they were on the wrong side. And so how do you know? How do you know whether you're on the right side or the wrong side? Well, that's why the prophets were so important. They gave God's assessment on what is right and what is wrong. And they made clear, it's not history that determines whether you're right or wrong. It is, in fact, God. And so you need to hear the word of God. And in this passage, what we find here is that God gives his assessment. There is bad news for this kingdom God speaks of. But there's also a glimmer of good news we'll see towards the end. So let's have a look. Let me encourage you, keep, keep your Bibles open. We'll make our way through chapter 13. So there is bad news. And the bad news is that there is the terror of judgment. Judgment is coming. God is looking upon the world. He's assessing the situation and he says, this is bad and there is judgment that is coming and it is frightening. And over the next several weeks, 
that will be the repeating theme that we'll see. Isaiah speaks to the people of God and he sort of gives a panoramic view of all the nations around Israel, all the nations around Judah. He gives them a panoramic view and he says, well, all these nations around you, they're facing judgment. It is bad news for them. And so across over towards the east, across the Dead Sea, Moab, they will be judged. Towards the north, Damascus, they will be destroyed. Towards the south, in Egypt, they too will be destroyed. It is bad news all over. God assesses the world, assesses the different kingdoms, and it is bad news all over. But in our passage today, the words are directed to Babylon. Have a look at verse 1. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. And so this was what Isaiah saw, and he's now telling the people of God. He's saying, you know that kingdom in the far east, that kingdom of Babylon? Well, let me tell you what will happen to them. Now, of course, it hasn't happened yet. It won't happen for another 150 to 170 years. It's still well into the future. But as I was telling the people of God, before they even become a superpower, before they even one day come to destroy Jerusalem, this is their downfall. They will fall. And they will fail. And so what we need to realize here, even that idea that Isaiah can speak into the future about what will happen to the kingdoms, it really shows to us that this is a God who determines history. He's the God who is sovereign over all the kingdoms. I mean, who's Lord over Australia? It is not our Prime Minister. It is God. Who is Lord over China? It's not the, the I don't know, the chairman there. It's, it is God. Who's over America is not the president, it is God. And it is like that throughout history. And so when we read history and we read of kingdoms rising and falling, of empires conquering and being conquered, in history you see kingdoms come up and down all the time. The Egyptians were a superpower at one point, no more. The Assyrians were, but no more. The Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. I mean, more recent history... What was the superpower of the world? Well, it was the British Empire at their peak. They held sway to about a quarter of the world's population at their peak, the peak of the British Empire. But of course, today they're only a shadow of their glory days. But what we're meant to see already is that who's the Lord over all the nations? Who's the king over all of history? It is God. But here it is about Babylon. So what will happen to Babylon? Well, they have to face God. You see, kingdoms fight each other. People go to war. Countries, nations go to war. But yet here we see behind the scene, and that is they are in fact facing God. It is God who is raising an army against them. Have a look at verse 3. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. You see, though, though it was the Persians who defeated the Babylonians, we see here behind the scenes, it is God's activity. And then verse 5, They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath, to destroy the whole country. Remember again, this, this was spoken well in advance, at least 150 years before it happened. And so if anything... Babylon was on the wrong side of history because they were on the wrong side of God. 
And so how will they respond this time into the future? I mean, how would you respond if your enemy was God? Just let that sink in a bit. If your enemy was God, how would you respond? I mean, if I had to face my neighbor's German shepherd, that would terrify me already. If I had to face a bear to protect my family, that would terrify me. Or let's just say if we were to go to war and your enemy was the full force of the United States Defense Force. There's no way you're going to win that. But here, it is fighting against God. How do you win that? And so how would you respond? Well, your heart would freeze in terror. Your knees would become jelly. Your whole body would go limp. I mean, just think of your most frightening experience, whatever that might be, and multiply it a thousand times. How can anyone stand up against God? And so we see this described. Look at verses 6 to 9. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize him. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. And so Babylon, what will come of them? It is bad news, terrifying news, well before it would happen. But yet it gets worse. Look at the description. The judgment now is cosmic in nature. Not just the kingdom. The land will be left desolate, but even the stars and the sun and the moon will stop shining. That is cosmic judgment. Now keep that in mind because we'll come back to that later, but look at verses 9 to 10 now. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Imagine that, living through that. That is absolute fear and terror. That is to be on the wrong side of God. And so how can anyone stand up against that? But yet it gets worse still. Have a look. There is no hiding when it comes. There is nowhere to flee. The judgment is absolute and it is inescapable. Verse 15 now. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. No escape at all. If God is your enemy, there is no hope. And who was it? That brought about this destruction. Who did God use? Well, we sort of saw that little demonstration before. It was the Medes, the Persians who will rise up against them, and under Cyrus the Persian, they will overthrow Babylon. But if you came along to camp last week and listened to the talks online, we looked at Daniel chapter 5, if you remember that. And what happened in Daniel chapter 5? Well, the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar, he saw the writing on the wall, remember that? And in that same chapter, he was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. See, that happened in the time of Daniel. But this was spoken about 150 years, 170 years before that. And when they come, they will show no mercy. Look at verses 17 to 18 now. See, I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold, which means you can't buy them out. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants. 
nor will they look with compassion on children. And so Isaiah is speaking at this point. He's speaking and saying to the people of God, you know, that kingdom in the Far East, though they look like nothing now, they will come to power. One day they will destroy you, but one day they also will have their day in judgment. And so Isaiah was speaking of a time in the future. But of course we need to ask why. I mean, how do you have God as your enemy? That is serious. That is deadly serious. What did Babylon do to deserve such terrifying judgment? Because we want to know that so that we won't be like them. What did they do? Well, it's not like what we're reading here. It's not like God decided to just lose control and unleash his wrath for nothing, for no reason. Of course not. God is always measured, always just, always righteous. That is the God of the Bible. And so what did Babylon do to deserve such terrifying judgment? Well, it was God's judgment upon all human pride. And Babylon symbolized human pride. You see, the pride of Babylon reaches back all the way to Genesis, what we saw in the kids' talk today. You see, the world got together in Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? In the Tower of Babel, the world got together and they said, let us build a tower to reach the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. That is human pride. Arrogant display of pomp and power in defiance of God. And so Babylon is symbolic of that. It has its history that reaches back to Genesis 11. And now during the time of Isaiah, Babylon will one day go and build one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I mean, this is an artist's impression of it. But imagine having that at the center of your city. You'll be proud. One of the seven wonders of the world and it's in your city? I mean, you'll be proud of that if you're a Babylonian. I mean, here in Melbourne, what can we be proud of? We've got Federation Square or the Westgate Bridge. Not much there. But they got one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And for about 300 years, Babylon was the largest city in the world. I mean, they had every reason to be proud of. So just imagine the New York, the London, the Tokyo of the ancient world. They had so much to be proud of. But when we read of Babylon here, we are also to think, this is the historical Babylon, proud and haughty. Belshazzar living a life of opulence, not seeing that destruction was coming. But we are also here to see Babylon as not just the ancient city, but Babylon as symbolic of all human pride in rebellion to God. Now if you think about that, if Babylon represents human rebellion against God, do you think that still exists today in our world, in our society? Pride not just of individuals, but of society, of nations, in defiance of God. Do you think that still exists? Does Babylon still exist today? Of course it does. Of course it does. You know, people would say, well, look at what we have done with all our scientific endeavours. So much achievement and advancement in our knowledge, in technology. We've gone so far. 
so advanced that many would even now claim in the name of science that God does not exist. The most brightest of minds in our world would claim that God does not exist. That is human pride at its ugliest. Or people who claim, look at our centres of learning, the elite thinkers of our society, our universities. But when you look at it, what godless places they are. You see, that's human pride. That's Babylon. And so do you see why pride is not only just bad? From God's perspective, human pride is wicked and evil. To be proud is to set ourselves up against God. The heart of human pride is to be number one. I am number one. And we become the centre of our thoughts and our hopes and our imagining. It's no wonder why C.S. Lewis, when he spoke of pride in his brilliant book, he called pride the most utmost, the utmost of evil. He, he said this, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchaste, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You see, pride is evil because it is to set us up against God and that's to become Babylon. So what does, the, what does God think about the proud? What will God do? Well, look at verse 11 now. God says, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Human pride will not last. Human pride will be quashed by God. And that's why Babylon, symbolic of all Babylons, even today, will be overthrown and judged by God. And I wonder whether that's why great kingdoms and empires of our history will never last. The greatest empires will always come down. There will always be a downfall. And I wonder whether that is because as they become great, there is always pride and God will quash all pride. And here to Babylon, verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. They will cease to exist as great as they were. I mean, imagine that. The New York of the ancient world, gone, left in ruin. And today, that's what Babylon is like. It's just a ruin in the city of Hilla in Iraq, comprising of broken mud brick buildings and debris. There's a picture there. That's God's judgment upon the proud. And that's why we read in verse 20 now, she will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. It becomes a complete wasteland. Human pride is to make God our enemy. God stands against human pride. But that's only a picture of all who stand against God like Babylon. 
You see, Babylon is symbolic, a real kingdom in history, but symbolic of all Babylons today, which means, you see, this is terrifying. The judgment that they experience is really only a foretaste of the judgment that all Babylons will experience. And so as great as Australia is today, as great as USA is today, these nations will not last. They will not last into eternity. And that's how the prophets worked. That's how we are to understand the prophets and their prophecies. You see, the prophecies of the prophets of Isaiah, they spoke of an immediate fulfillment. But they always had and anticipated a bigger future complete fulfillment. There's the immediate fulfillment in their history, but there's also a greater one. It's a bit like looking at the stars through a telescope. When you look through the, through the telescope and see a star, it might look like it's just the one star. But in fact, there's a bigger one further away behind it, but from our perspective, it just looks like one. And so from the perspective of Isaiah here, in his prophecies, what he describes in judgment sounds like it was fulfilled when Babylon was destroyed. But there's in fact a bigger judgment to come after that. All those who defy God, there is no hope for them back then and even today. And that's why, you see, the language of the judgments we read seemed just larger than life. I mean, the sun and the moon also not giving its light. I mean, that's cosmic destruction. And that's why it's called the day of the Lord. Now, for us who have been reading the Bible for a while, we see the, the phrase the day of the Lord in the New Testament many times and that speaks of the final terrifying judgment of God upon all human pride and so to be on the wrong side of God is really to be on the wrong side of history now so far it looks like bad news and it is bad news terrifying news but now as we look at the end of this passage in chapter 14 we see here that it ends with a note of good news. In the midst of judgment, there is salvation. It's a bit like after a bushfire, the little seeds will start to germinate. There is judgment first, and after that, God will still save some. Now, do you notice that in our passage? God will have compassion and this is out of God's own will and choice. He will keep his promise to Abraham, the first guy we saw in that, in that little de demonstration before. They will return to their land, and the blessings of God, notice this, the blessings of God will go not just to the Jewish people, but will extend out to all nations, to even the Gentiles. So have a look at verses 1 to 2. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob, once again, he will choose Israel and settle them in, his, in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. Now, of course, as we reflect on that wonderful promise and glimpse of salvation, it was all in the future for them. Babylon will fall. Persia will rise. Israel will return to Judah and will will rebuild their temple. But if we look at their history, they never really experienced peace since then. 
Never. They, even when they returned to Jerusalem, they were always under Persian rule. And then later on, during the time of Jesus, they were under Roman rule. And if we look at that region today in Palestine, there's endless fighting. There is no peace. So what do you think God is speaking about here? What's the bigger fulfillment that Isaiah was speaking of here, this salvation? Well, just like the judgment that Babylon experienced was only a foretaste of the bigger end of days judgment, so the salvation that God would experience, that the people of God would experience when they returned to Jerusalem, that too was only a foretaste of the bigger salvation. It's the biggest star before the front star, behind the front star. Gentiles will too be included amongst the people of God. There is that bigger salvation that this is looking forward to. Now, what do you think that might be talking about? I think there are clues in this passage. I wonder if you've noticed that. You see, there will be judgment, and then there will be salvation. But what does the day of judgment look like? Well, look at verse 10 again in your, in your Bibles, verse 10. The day of judgment looks like the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And then verse 13, Therefore I'll make the heavens tremble. So somehow on this day of judgment, the heavens will tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Now, where do you see that in the New Testament? When the skies went dark, when the earth quaked, when the world trembled. Well, something like that happened at the crucifixion of Jesus. You see, there was darkness over the land. In Matthew 27, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. And later in that chapter, the earth trembled. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. You see, the judgment of God did come eventually. A bigger judgment than what Babylon experienced in the past. But this judgment fell not just on order proud, but this judgment of God has fallen on his own son. See, at the cross of Christ was one who bore the wrath of God in place of the wicked. And that's why Jesus was such, in such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that is how there is salvation after judgment. Jesus was judged so that salvation might flow, so that even now, what was hinted in that passage even now, Gentiles might be included amongst the people of God. And so do you see what the cross has done? It kills human pride. It shows, I cannot save myself. I cannot depend on myself. I can never be good enough. In fact, if I, if I am proud, then I have God as my enemy. Instead, I humbly, desperately need Christ to be my saviour who stood in my place as the one who bore the wrath of God. Carl Henry, an American evangelist, he once said this, How can anyone be arrogant 
when he stands beside the cross. And so out of judgment that fell on the Son of God, there is salvation. A little glimpse in this passage, but that was the biggest star behind the front star. For those who humble themselves before the cross of Christ, there is salvation. But of course, though the judgment of God has fallen on his son, there is still the day of the Lord. We read of in the New Testament. There is still the day of reckoning when all will have to face God and the proud will not be able to stand. But even though the judgment of God has fallen on his son, so that people now can be saved, do you think it is at all possible that people will still choose to remain, not, not merely on the wrong side of history, but on the wrong side of God? Is it at all possible? The judgment of God has already fallen on someone, but will people still choose, I will stand on my own two feet? Well, of course it is. It is possible and we see it all around us. And what was God's assessment on Babylon? What would God say to Australia today? What do you think? Are we a proud nation, a godless nation? Well, I suspect God would say something very similar. You see, our culture, we live in it, so it's hard to see, but our culture, it's about living for ourselves. Living today, for today, living for pleasure, not living for God. And if I'm not living for God, then I'm on the wrong side of God. Our culture does not humble itself before God Almighty. I mean, there were huge efforts just recently to get rid of the Lord's Prayer in Parliament. Why? Because it is a godless society. And that is to place us on the wrong side of God. But just to show you how far our city has gone, how godless it has become, I'm not sure if you remember this, but about 14 years ago, you know how the logo for the city of Melbourne, it changes after uh, several years? About 14 years ago, the logo for the city of Melbourne was spelt, you know, Melbourne, M-E-L-B-O-U-R-N-E, but instead of the L, it was an exclamation mark. Do you remember that? I'm not the only one old enough to remember. It's only 14 years ago. But what does that read then if it's M-E exclamation mark? It's about me. You see, that's how godless we have become. We have become about me. Now, I try to find a picture on the internet. It was hard to find, but there's that logo there. That's me, Melbourne. You see, what's that statement trying to make? What our city is like, what our nation is like. Well, it's making a point. The city is about me. Life is about me. And what does God call that? God calls that pride. And so I remember that year at Christmas time, you know how they have these Christmas banners all over the city. And so that year, instead of celebrate Christmas, it was celebrate me. Now, isn't that just a bit like Babylon? Or perhaps even more explicit, we find in writings of famous authors, Ayn Rand, Russian-American philosopher, she said this, And now I see the face of God, and I raise this God over the earth, this God whom men have sought since men came into being, this God who will grant them joy and peace and pride, this God, this one word, I. Now, though that is a work of fiction, how many people live that way? 
How many societies live that way? How many nations live that way? And that is pride. And so Jerry Bridges, he said, pride is contending for supremacy with God. That's why pride means God is against me. It is to rob God of legitimate glory and to pursue self-glorification. And that's why pride is so ugly. And the great terror that Babylon faced in this passage is really only a foretaste of the greater terror to come. On the day of the Lord, we read it over and over again in the New Testament. In our first reading, in fact, in Revelation 18, the last book, it speaks of the great day when all Babylons of the world will face their miserable end. The angel cried out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Genesis began in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Revelation, the last book, Babylon will fall. And who can stand against God in judgment? No one. And so what do you think this now means for us? Well, what it means for us is that for us as individuals, for us as a church, for us as a community, we need to make sure that we are on the right side of God. If judgment, if the judgment of God has already fallen on his son, then I make sure I humble myself before God, accept his gift of grace, accept his son as my saviour. That is the only way to be on the right side of God. Without Jesus, God is against us. Without Jesus as my saviour, God is against us. So we make sure that we are on the right side of God by receiving his free gift of grace. Now, whether we're on the right side of history or not, that's not what's important. What's important is that we make sure we're on the right side of God. And so it's a question you need to ask yourself. Do you stand tall and proud on your own merits before God or do you stand humbly at the foot of the cross. The judgment of God has fallen. It has fallen on Christ or it will fall on us. As for me, I choose Christ. Let him bear it instead of me. And so what will you choose? You see, to choose Christ is to know it was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gift, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. To believe that is to be on the right side of God. Let's pray.